I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey Jim, great to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand. Far too much to talk about today, both economic, financial and political. I'm going to start with our time-honoured friend, inflation, and therefore the interest rate outlook. All important interest rates. We've had two big inflation prints over the last few days. One in the United States, which disappointed, and one in the UK, which surprised because it was lower than expected. So go figure. We have two rather different stories on both sides of the Atlantic. Your usual caveat applies. It is only one month's data. And there is, I think, a particular story with respect to the US data, at least, that suggests it might just be a one month story. But I'll come on to that. For the record, US inflation numbers ticked up in a way that markets didn't expect. We got a big reaction in bond, the all-important bond market and therefore the interest rate market. And yet again, in a trend that we've seen really all year for the first six weeks or so of this year, interest rate expectations have steadily been scaled back, those expectations being for cuts, of course. At the time that I am speaking, the markets have gone from having five quarter point cuts priced into the states have now gone to four and are lowering their probabilities for when the first rate cut will take place. They're pushing that back. And that, as I say, has been something that's been happening on both sides of the Atlantic this year uh, for all sorts of reasons, not least because of this inflation print, but also for other factors as well. The UK inflation numbers came in a bit weaker than expected, which has excited UK equity bond and interest rate markets today. So it's it's a, it's two different stories. On the US, I've got to get a little bit geeky, a little bit 
technical about the numbers because at this time of year in the States, there's all sorts of questions about something called seasonal adjustment. What statisticians try to do is they try to smooth out the regular seasonal fluctuations in all sorts of economic time series, not least prices. And it's a time of year that's difficult to do that because prices for all sorts of things tend to rise at the beginning of the year as people reset their their menu charges, if you like, and people set firms and businesses and government actually set prices ahead for services and goods for the year ahead. Prices only change, we hope, infrequently. So there's all sorts of technical shenanigans. And there's a big question over rents in the United States. I know rents are very topical for all sorts of economic and social reasons in Ireland. But we've been told by economists and statisticians for ages that the rental component of US inflation is very lagging and is probably too high. It's having too high an impact on current inflation numbers and that the fall in rents that we've seen over the last year or so will one day show up in US inflation numbers. And the fact is, yesterday they didn't. Rental inflation, according to the statisticians, is still too high. It's a peculiarity of the way they measure rents. They don't go out and ask people how much are you paying. They do this thing called imputed rents, and it's all weird and it's all very technical. But it leads us to think that maybe, just maybe, it was one month, it was a bit noisy, but it was very, very disappointing for certainly for US and therefore for global financial markets. As I say, to contrast that, we've got the UK where we're now saying the Bank of England can cut interest rates sooner rather than later as a result of one month's numbers. That may well change. But one of the things that I'd say about that story on both sides of the the Atlantic, that there is a building case for the Federal Reserve to delay its rate cuts. It's only a case. It's not a certainty. Um, but there's no case for Europe and the UK to really um, not cut interest rates. As you've heard me say many times, Jim, and I, know, I think you've agreed with me, Europe should have cut rates already. I know that there are other bits of economic data that you want to talk about. There's Eurozone industrial production and Eurozone GDP and some other indicators. But what's your take on all that inflation, interest rate, bond market story? And also perhaps your take on some of the data that I haven't talked about. Well, the US um, inflation number came in at 3.1. That was up 0.3 in the month. Uh, the markets had been expecting 2.9. And the core rate, excluding food and energy, came in at 3.9%. 3.7% expected. Um, we got a phenomenal market reaction yesterday. And in fact, um, a statistic I came across, um, I don't know who compiles these statistics, but uh, yesterday saw the worst inflation day drop in the S&P 500 since September 22. Okay. Um, wow. And, and September 22, of course, was back in the day when inflation was really accelerating, was really becoming a serious issue. As you say, the markets are repricing their interest rate expectations. Uh, Yesterday, the market was pricing in the first US cut in July. Um, It has eased a bit this morning and the markets are now suggesting June. Uh, But that's the the skittish nature of markets. Uh, But I, I, I think the really bottom line here is that Uh, There's not a strong argument to be made for the Federal Reserve cutting rates as aggressively as the markets had priced in last December. And indeed, we've seen bond yields up by over a half percent since late December when we got this euphoria about falling inflation and about the Federal Reserve 
accelerating interest rate cuts. So that, that's one story. And I, I guess the inflation pressures in the U.S. economy perhaps in some ways mirror the strength of the U.S. economy because you look in contrast at the U.K. inflation data, uh, the headline rate came in at 4%, the core rate excluding food and energy at 5.1%. Uh, high numbers in a relative sense, but still lower than the markets had expected. And perhaps that is also a reflection of the ongoing sluggishness of the UK economy. So maybe we're seeing this contrasting inflation data over the last couple of days, reflecting the contrasting um, economic performance of the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, in the euro area, uh, it's probably even more interesting because I agree with you. I think the European Central Bank should have cut before now. I also think that the European Central Bank actually tightened too much on the upside because we have spoken in numerous podcasts about the fact that Eurozone inflation was definitely more supply side driven rather than demand driven. So increasing interest rates to try and affect the supply side uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. If demand is excessive, well, then you um, <clears throat> increase interest rates because that's really where interest rates have the most fundamental impact. But uh, we've got the latest um, growth numbers for the Netherlands, for example. The Dutch economy actually expanded by 0.3% in the final quarter of last year. And that ends a three-quarter negative run for the Dutch economy. So perhaps signs of stabilization there. But on the other hand, we had growth in the Finnish economy declined by 0.4%. And Finland is now in technical recession. And two factors are cited in explaining that Finnish number. One is the impact of higher interest rates. And secondly, the impact of higher inflation, particularly on consumer spending. And we got the Eurozone growth data, the second estimate for the final quarter of last year, a flat economy. Um, and that's no change from the initial estimate, but it shows that the Eurozone economy is now no bigger than it was in GDP terms than the third quarter of 2022. Okay, so weak GDP data generally, apart from the upward um, blip in the Netherlands, but other data out of the Euro area, industrial production was up by 2.6%. Okay, which was much, much stronger than the markets had expected. That was in the fourth quarter of last year. Or was it December? Sorry, it's December, up 2.6%. But the Eurostat has explained that 23.5% growth in Irish industrial production and 6.6% growth in Dutch industrial production uh, seriously skewed that number in an upper direction. But even if you strip out that stuff, uh, those two distortions in Ireland and the Netherlands, uh, it was still growth of 1%, which is stronger than expected. And employment in the final quarter of last year in the euro area, up 0.3% on the previous quarter. And this is the 11th successive quarter of employment gains in the euro area. So it's a confused enough picture in the eurozone. I think that there is no doubt about that. Um, certainly, I think we're seeing some signs that, you know, the 
descent of the eurozone economy has bottomed out there's some green shoots starting to emerge but the but I, I guess there's two points I would make here one is that um, it is time for the eurozone the European Central Bank to start cutting rates based on economic fundamentals and secondly in the euro area again we see this ongoing divergence in the performance of labor markets and economies um, and that's a phenomenon we see absolutely everywhere you know we have seen nothing like the sort of uh, deterioration in labor market conditions you might have expected given the growth backdrop given what's happened on the interest rate side i know we've said this before but one of the interesting or perhaps dirty secrets of academic economics is that there is still even after hundreds of years of trying no real fully articulated agreed upon consensus theory of inflation and arguments rage and i read something very interesting yesterday from somebody called david andelfato i think that's his if i mispronounce his name i apologize in which he traced the history of the thinking about inflation right up to the present day not just an academic exercise although it was that as well because it's very interesting in the history of these things and how we used to think about inflation in the past, what we thought about in the 70s and the 80s and 90s, and how we think about it today. And he's making the point that at each step along the way, we've realized that we've been getting it wrong in how we think about inflation. And that has led to a revolution often, or sometimes evolution, in macroeconomic thought. And there are various aspects to that, the the original Phillips curve, and then Milton Friedman's quantity theory of money, and all that good stuff that any student of economics will recognize some of those sound bites and he thinks we're at a moment now where we're going to have a, to have another rethink because whatever we did think up until the most recent episode uh, of, of inflation uh, it clearly was wrong because as you say inflation seems to have come down all of its own accord and we're actually asking the question this is mine rather than david's would in, would inflation have come down all by itself without these interest rate rises? We'll never know because we can't conduct these natural experiments in economics. That's why it's so hard. But it is sobering to think that these central banks are mostly operating in the dark. They don't know if the fall in inflation that we've achieved was because of or in spite of their interest rate rises. And another big academic exercise that's been conducted recently is asking the question, well, what is the right level of interest rates then? And it was a huge exercise. I forget where I saw it reported. It might have been in the FT. It might have been an ECB exercise. But anyway, the conclusion of this massive exercise, what is the right level of interest rates? Guess what, Jim? We don't know. <laughs> and so we are all operating in the dark. It's like driving a car in the dark without headlights or in, or in, and a very foggy, misted up rear view mirror. Because let alone where we're going, it's where we've come from sometimes is obscure. Sometimes the way in which data is reported can be very, very confusing. And I'll give you one small example of this. In, in the, the FT today, there are, there are two headlines about UK house prices. Guess what they say? One says UK house prices fall for the sixth month in a row. And the other says UK house prices up for the first time in four months. And of course, the two journalists concerned, clearly, they're probably sitting next to each other, but they need to talk to each other. Because yes, data has been released today that show that UK house prices in December fell on the previous December. They were down and they've been that way negative, falling year over year, the current month compared to 12 months ago for the last six months. But in December, 
relative to November, UK house prices went up 0.1%. So both headlines were right, but talking about completely different things. And I think a, a, a lay reader, shall we say, of the FT this morning would have been thinking about whether or not their subscription was worth paying. So and so it's always very important to, to know exactly what it is that you, you're, you're looking at. Some other, I guess it's data, but it's more just market pricing. This one that has caught my eye today is the behavior of gas prices globally. Now, natural gas prices are particularly important, as, we, as you and I have discussed so many times, for the setting of uh, our electricity prices at home. It is the gas price that determines changes in the electricity price for all sorts of strange reasons. It's not the price of oil, it's not the price of coal, it is the price of gas. And we've talked about why that is the case in the past, so I won't go on, go into that again. But Dutch natural gas, which is the benchmark, as we like to say, for all European natural gas marks, markets, is, as we speak, around €25 Euros per megawatt hour, I think it is. And that represents a fall from around €350 Euros at the peak of the energy crisis following Putin's invasion of Ukraine and weaponization of that gas price. So we're down a lot. The spot electricity price, the wholesale electricity price here in the UK this morning, peaked at just under £600 per megawatt hour back in the day of the big energy crisis following Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Today, it's at £59. So it really has fallen a lot. I mean, you could argue that it's fallen, I don't know, 90%, give or take. And the cheap shot that I could make about UK electricity pricing is that my bills have not fallen 90% from their peak. Now, I know there are lots of lags. It's only the spot price. There is lots to do with people buying and selling electricity in the forward markets. It's much more technical than the spot price. And indeed, my electricity bills didn't go up um, by as much as the wholesale price did. We were protected from that in all sorts of different ways. But anyway, I do think that if the current situation in gas and electricity markets continues, we can all here in the UK and there in Ireland, Jim, look forward to lower energy bills, at least over the summer, which is which is a good piece of news. Related to that, the US natural gas price, um, which clearly is affected by all of this, but does go on a different journey to the European price. It's far less affected by Putin's invasion of Ukraine because they produce all their own natural gas over there. That's back today to where it was in the early 1990s, Jim, which is close, not there yet, but close to all-time lows. So they're clearly on global markets isn't a problem for natural gas, which I think, again, from a pricing point of view, is a good thing. It is sort of a good thing from an environmental thing, and it'll further encourage switching from coal to natural gas. That's from a very high carbon emitting thing, coal to a lower carbon emitting thing, natural gas. But even natural gas, of course, is bad for the environment. It's better than some other sources. But we all have to switch from natural gas going forward to alternatives to make a difference. That's a, that, again, is a different discussion. But it's good news, isn't it, Jim? I think, we, you know, we should be looking forward to lower energy prices at home. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anyway. It is absolutely good news. And for the UK consumer, the Consumer Price Index report uh, this morning shows that food prices are also on the way down. So... Yeah, there's, there's, there is hope, and and perhaps this suggests that you know global economic activity generally might be a little bit stronger in 2024 than we previously than was previously believed. But before I get back to that, Chris, um, based on the previous conversation, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. One was the sanctity of a two percent inflation target. You know, two percent inflation target is a number that is picked out of the air. It doesn't really have any scientific basis. Um, wh- why? What do you? Why do you think central bankers are so obsessed with a two percent inflation rate? I mean, one percent, three percent, four percent. Yeah, that, as you say, Jim. There's a lot of debate about this, and not very much science. The Original 2% target arose for a number of reasons. One, they have to have a target. And there's been lots of debate over the years about whether that, in fact, should be price stability. Some hardliners think the right, the only infl- logical inflation target is 0%. And, you know, you can certainly see some consistency in that argument. If central banks are supposed to target price stability, which is what a lam- lot of mandates suggest that they should, 0% inflation is the right one. The two problems with that, that central banks from a very practical, pragmatic point of view always say, is that if they target 0% and get it wrong on the downside and they trigger deflation, that can be very unstable. It can be as bad as inflation, particularly for people who owe lots of money. We have economies where large swathes of the government sector in particular, but also corporates and individuals do have debt on their balance sheets. And that when you have falling prices, that means that the real value of that debt is going up and you get something called a debt deflation. Uh, That was a feature of the 1930s depression, for example. And it might be something, for example, that the Chinese have to worry about at the moment. They don't have to worry quite so much about the debt side of that because they are a big, uh, the government at least is a big saving part of that economy. And so is the personal sector, actually. One of the reasons why the Chinese save so much rather than borrow is that they don't really have any kind of social security or welfare system or indeed old age pensions. So they're all they're all mad savers. The second reason why central bankers say that they won't target zero percent inflation is that they think inflation is mismeasured. As you know, Jim, there are, you know, Heinz 57 varieties of inflation measures. If you want, we could devote a whole podcast to the measurement of inflation and reduce our listenership to about two people, i.e. you and me. Um, but So we won't do that. Uh, but any one of those measures contains strengths and weaknesses. And we choose one rather than the other. 
We go on about the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, which is not the measure that was released yesterday. We're going to get the Fed's preferred measure of inflation out later this month. And there are measurement issues. You can't go out and measure the price of every single good and service in the economy. You can only estimate it from sampling. It's a bit like opinion polling. You can't ask everybody in the country unless it's a general election, and even then only half the country votes. Um, so you never know exactly what's going on. You have to make inferences. You have to do statistical sampling of quite sophisticated kind. But for years and years and years, to the extent to which we can figure out where the biases in inflation are, there was a theory that we were overestimating it. That for, you know, and that was largely because of technological change, that we, we weren't capturing the impact of the fall in price in particular of technological goods. So the, the price of an iPhone in real terms has fallen uh, a bit since it first came out. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that. But these technological devices that cost, say they have, it, it, back in 2007 when the iPhone came out and it cost 500 quid to buy and it cost 500 quid to buy at one particular cheaper iPhone. Now it looks as if there hasn't been any iPhone inflation. But now that the iPhone can do a thousand times more things than it could back in 2007, it carries the entire world's stock of knowledge. What's the real price of that iPhone? And statisticians have ways of trying to capture this, but there's a feeling that with iPhones and the price of things like silicon chips, and particularly lots of electronic devices, both consumer and corporate, that we're not capturing fully the, the, the benefits, if you like, of improving quality rather than falling prices. So some people say that that impacts on GDP. You know, we, we have a GDP measurement system that was designed to measure physical quantities. Statisticians went out and measured and weighed GDP output of uh, companies. Companies don't make physical stuff anymore. It's all services based. So how on earth do you capture this, the, the price of services when, you, when you're trying to quality adjust them? So anyway, all of that led to them saying, okay, well, because we think we're overestimating underlying inflation through time, we're going to say that 2% actually probably is nearly zero anyway. So that plus the debt deflation worries gave rise to the 2% target. Whether that's in practice, materially different from, say, having a 3% target, I would say absolutely, Jim, you're right. 3% is as good a target as 2%. I think the most important thing for inflation is that whatever number you choose, A, you hit it, and B, you keep inflation within spitting distance of it. It's very important for inflation to be stable. If inflation was to be 3% forever and ever for the next millennia, that would be fine. The important thing, the more important thing is to keep it stable. Obviously, there is the practical consideration that it, central banks are less likely to rate, to cut rates and more likely to raise them at 3% because of the 2% target. In practice, my forecast is they're going to be quite relaxed about 3% inflation. They're, they're not going to worry about it in the way that they would worry about 5 or 6% inflation, almost by definition, that the, their behavior will reflect that desire to keep inflation stable. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if this time next year we find that inflation has been, in the US, for example, stable in the 2.5%, range rather than stable at around 2%. I don't know. I'm not going to be a forecaster, but that's my guess. And certainly would be my recommendation. Don't worry too much about the yeah. target. Just keep inflation stable. Does that answer your question, mate? It, it, it does, Chris. Yeah. In, in 1997, when the new Labour government under Tony Blair and Chancellor Gordon Brown took office, one of the first things they did 
was to give operational independence to the Bank of England. So in other words, the political system could no longer tell the Bank of England what to do with interest rates effectively. And they gave the uh, Bank of England an inflation target. And if inflation went 1% either side of that target, the governor of the Bank of England had to write a letter to the chancellor to explain why that was the case. I, I, so that's very much inflation targeting. I presume that's still the situation in the UK. Yeah, I don't think that letter gets written too much. Otherwise, it would be a waste of paper. Um, yeah. I haven't actually looked recently because, of course, for, for, for months and months, if not years, we've been well above. We've been on the letter writing threshold, been above month. it. So yeah. um, nobody nobody worries too much about that anymore. It may have even been suspended. I don't I don't actually know. But, but it, it, it does show a very interesting um, attitude towards targeting inflation. But anyway, yeah, thanks for that um, explanation, Chris. Second thing I just wanted to talk about was productivity. Okay, productivity is basically output per worker. And the general consensus would be in the world of economics that if you want to grow prosperity, improve quality of life, standard of living, etc., uh, one of the basic things you have to do is to try and grow productivity. And the data we've we've been getting out of the euro area over the last couple of years certainly shows that employment growth has exceeded output. So that would suggest that the productivity performance is poor. And secondly, I was listening to uh, a great interview with um, Hamza Yosef, who is the leader of the SNP, the Scottish National Party. He was he was being quizzed by Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell, actually, about you know his whole attitude to life, to economic management, et cetera, et cetera. And in terms of the economic agenda, he was sort of saying for Scotland, it's essential to grow productivity, that you know, Scotland has been a laggard, but you would say the same about Wales and Northern Ireland. But anyway, uh, he was saying he was talking about the need to actually improve productivity in Scotland. And Rory Stewart sort of pursued him, asking him, well, what specifically would you do? And he started talking about investment in green energy and driving the green economy. And I was listening to it thinking, how in the name of God does that boost productivity? You know, there was no mention of investment in education in training in upskilling the labor force, in investment in physical and IT infrastructure and so on. So it's 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 an interesting debate, but many countries, the United Kingdom in general, the, the Euro area obviously, um, have serious productivity problems. Ireland, it's much more difficult to actually assess what's happening productivity here given how distorted it is by the activities of the multinational sector and the, the massive boost we get to GDP growth. So where do you stand on the whole productivity debate? My first ever job, Jim, as a professional economist was when I was still a graduate student. I had a summer job at the Department of Trade and Industry in the summer of 1981. That's how old I am. And I was given a task over several weeks to write a survey of all of the theoretical and empirical literature that sought to answer the question, why has there been a global slowdown in economic productivity following in the period 1973 to 1981? 
So it's a problem that predates the current era. We're going back into prehistoric days there, mate. Paul Krugman once famously said that productivity isn't everything in economics, but it's almost everything. I'm not sure he was right, actually. I think it is everything. Because as you say, it is, the, the, at the end of the day, the only thing that raises living standards in a sustainable way. Prior to about, really, the early 1800s, maybe the late 1700s, not that long ago in terms of proper history, so we're talking about 250 years ago or so, there had been no product, no sustained productivity growth in the world ever. And we have data that supports that. And that means that people living just about before the, the time of the Industrial Revolution, as I say, about 250 years ago, on average around the world, their living standards weren't that different, were probably about the same as the average cave dweller during the Stone Age. It really is that stark. And whenever I quote that to anybody, they always say they don't believe me and yada, yada, yada. What actually happened was that when economic growth took place prior to the Industrial Revolution, it was what's called a very Malthusian world in that, yes, output per worker per person did go up, but then the number of people, the number of workers went up, population increased and absorbed all of that output increase, and everybody went back to, on average, subsistence living. Obviously, there was income inequality within countries and between countries, but it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that we learned how to, in a sustained way, get economic output growing faster than the population. And that's the thing that leads to sustained living standards. And we still argue to the present day about what caused the Industrial Revolution, why it took place in the UK, and uh, what happened afterwards. And therefore, we argue about what determines productivity, and nobody is really, really sure. We think that you have an, a whole list, a whole menu of choices, a whole number of boxes that you need to tick that will lead to productivity growth. It includes things like education and training. It includes things like capital investment. It includes the mysteries of technological change, why it happens when and where it happens. That's never smooth. It always comes in bursts. And I think we're experiencing the start of another productivity enhancing boost. That's AI. That's only a suspicion. I don't know that. I think that there is a hint in the US at least that it may have already improved the productivity figures. When productivity was first really seriously, empirically, econometrically, statistically uh, examined in the sort of 50s, 60s and 70s, it was all down to a recently deceased Nobel Prize winning economist called Robert Solo, who uh, talked about a lot about economic growth. And there was a very, there's a very famous equation in economics that involves something called the Solo residual. And the reason why it's called a residual is that it's a sort of a catch-all bucket in an equation that tries to say, well, that's where all of the technological productivity-inducing change happens, but we're not quite sure why it happens. And as with perhaps my earlier remarks about the inflation process, we've got a lot of suspects about what drives productivity. But um, even if you were to pull um, all those policy levers and push all those buttons for doing things like investment, education and training, uh, research and development. Uh, it doesn't guarantee productivity growth, but it's certainly necessary for productivity growth. There is a magic elixir. Something goes on in different places at different times. And uh, as I say, uh, we're, we're not sure. But what we do know is that if you don't invest in education and training, if you don't 
uh, invest generally, if you don't do R&D, if you don't encourage entrepreneurs, if you don't have vibrant small and medium-sized companies, uh, if you have if you have very restrictive planning laws if you don't allow people to experiment if you don't encourage people to build things you won't get any productivity increase and therefore you won't get any increase sustained increase in living standard and that for example i think is what's happened to the uk um it really over the last 15 years so that's a long-winded answer to your question jim uh, there are lots of things we know about productivity, lots of things that we know that you should do. None of them guarantee success, but what does guarantee productivity and living standard failure is if you don't do these things. Sorry, again, a, a long-winded answer to your question, but have I answered it? You have, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, t I totally agree with your analysis, I have to say, but uh, it, it just kind of amazed me how um, Hamza Yusuf, for example, who came across as a really impressive individual, very, very clued in, um, how he just basically didn't seem to get this fundamental issue about what drives productivity and why it's important. Um, it's become a little bit of a catchphrase. Another Nobel yeah. Prize winning economist, Robert Lucas, who was famous for doing all mm. sorts of things, actually. Brilliant man. Look, quite late on in his career, he's talked about this. And as you know, Jim, when we're talking about productivity growth, we're using those words really to mean economic growth. They, they effectively amount to the same thing. And he famously said, once you start thinking properly and deeply about economic growth, its drivers, its causes, the conditions that allow for it, the conditions that don't allow for it, as an economist, it's actually very hard to think about anything else. Indeed. On that note, Chris, let's go in and think about it. Good to talk. Thanks, Jim. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry shampoo, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 